Welcome to the ACO Show. Today, Josh and Brian welcome Dr. Bijan Talizadeh to discuss the basics of healthcare investing, including the difference between venture capital and private equity, some of the challenges of company mergers, and when a venture-backed company should try to become a publicly traded stock. Welcome to the ACO Show. I'm Josh Israel, along with my co-host, Brian Chiglinski. And we're joined today by Dr. Bijan Salhizadeh, who is the co-founder of NaviMed Capital, an investment firm specializing in the healthcare sector. Welcome, Bijan. Great to be with you. Thought we would start with a primer on investing. A lot of our listeners are physicians, healthcare workers, policymakers, uh, probably not too many investors. What is the difference between private equity and venture capital? Great question. And like a lot of things we might talk about today, the lines are fuzzy and have become fuzzier over the last few years. In one definition of it, private equity, or put another way, private capital, is all the capital that's not put into the stock market. So it's privately placed capital where the company you're investing in is not publicly traded. You can't go to Schwab and buy shares in a private company. And a subset of private equity is venture capital. With another lens, often used in the lingo, private equity is the style of investing in private companies where the investment firm that's making the investment is typically taking a control position, meaning they control the board and have more than 51% of the shares of the company, and tends to be driven more into profitable companies. So you're buying a majority position in an already profitable company from the founders of that company, and then growing it as you will. Venture capital is the kind of investment where you're typically investing also in a private company, but a company that is not profitable. The money that the investor is putting in is used to support the operations of that business to get it launched or grow it, put it in new markets, get its device or drug through the FDA, get its service launched, its health IT technology into the market, hire sales reps, whatever. So sort of that profitable versus unprofitable control or majority versus not having control. Those are some of the hallmarks of private equity versus venture capital. You know, I actually thought I understood what it meant. And I was asking that question as a, like a polite primer for the audience, but I just learned a lot. That was a fantastic description. And by the way, the lines have blurred over the last decade or two. So what you would have people who work in my field would have thought of as classically private equity firms are making venture capital investments in things a decade ago, they never would have smaller non-profitable companies because they want to get in before it's too late for them to get in. And in some cases, more rare, you're seeing venture capital funds invest in profitable companies. But it's, it's more typical that the big private equity funds are reaching down, particularly in digital health, health technology, are reaching down into territory that they've never invested in before because they see a change or transformation coming and they realize it might be too late. They may never have a chance under their old sort of rubric of it must be profitable and we must buy 51%. That's no longer the case for some of the big private equity funds reaching down into spaces like the one that Allidate operates in, but many other spaces in healthcare as well. Yeah, that I agree with Josh. It's always, it's always great to have a guest on who is a deep expert in their area because I think it's also educational for Josh and I. So appreciate that. Speaking of companies that are, that are moving into a different space, Allidade recently announced a, a step in a new direction uh, with our acquisition of Iris Healthcare. It's our very first acquisition and we're very excited about it, but maybe it would be helpful for the audience. And again, Josh and I go into the details maybe of the difference between a merger and an acquisition. And this one is particularly being called a, a tuck-in acquisition. Could you explain what that is? 
these are uh, terms of art. So, so a merger versus an acquisition. I would say almost always a bigger company buys a smaller company. And so the bigger company is making an acquisition of a smaller company. Sometimes, and this is not specific to Alidate or, or anyone, sometimes a smaller company likes it when it's called a merger because for their stakeholders and constituents, it's better to say we merged with that bigger thing rather than they bought us, they acquired us. But at the end of the day, almost always, a bigger thing buys a smaller thing. Occasionally, there are mergers of equals. But again, this is like one of those, the, the prior answer on private equity versus venture. People sort of define these things as they want. A tuck-in acquisition, it's lingo, like there's lingo in medicine, right? You know, when I train medicine, tuck-in means it's a, a smaller company that fits into our bag. And I would say just, you know, in terms of thinking about acquisitions, why do companies make acquisition? I think of it across a few metrics, and this kind of relates to, I think, Alidate entering the zone of buying companies like Iris. There are either revenue synergies, meaning we can go get more lives or more, a bigger market because of the acquisition. There are sometimes cost synergies, meaning, wow, that the thing we bought already has built out the infrastructure to do something that will save us costs of having to do it, the bigger company ourselves. There are sometimes reasons to do it around people. They have a particular group or capability that we just have to have that team. And there's no way we could go hire that team in the timeframe we need. So we'll buy that team. And you can have the same thing around products. So, and you don't have to have all of those when you make an acquisition, but typically you have one or two of those as the justification. And so a tuck-in, it doesn't really mean anything other than a relatively bigger thing bought a smaller thing for the capability or the people that they brought to the table. We have been watching now this acquisition of Iris Healthcare from the inside. It has way more moving parts to it than I would have thought. I guess I just would have thought it was like buying a car or something like that. But even sort of watching the HR mergers and having to get all new employees onto a different health plan, all the little details to make this thing happen without without hurting any of the people involved. What are some of the things in mergers that make them go right or go wrong, all the moving parts? I'm glad you asked that because sometimes from the outside, it seems really simple to say, oh yeah, we're gonna go buy this thing and then we're gonna go buy that thing. Or the smaller company might say, yeah, well, we're just gonna go get sold and then we're just gonna keep doing the thing we did under a bigger umbrella. And that is the idealized state for sure. But the devil's in the details. And, and as you said, Josh, it's really, there are, Lots, there are thousands of work streams to get an acquisition to go right. At the end of the day, the most important thing is the cultural fit. Is there a good cultural fit between the management teams and even the level below and the level below that? The people, the, the employees, is there a good cultural fit from the very top all the way down to that sort of lowest rung of the ladder in the employee base? Is that cultural fit there? And and that is particularly hard to do, as I've noticed you know, in, in my day job at Navamed, a lot of our companies make small acquisitions. It's hard to do that in this Zoom world. You are trying to set culture and combine cultures. The small company that's gotten acquired has done things a certain way for five, 10, 20 years in some cases. And they're gonna have to do things in a little bit of a different way when they get acquired. And that, that has to be really sort of textualized, bought into, and everyone needs to be aware of it. And the other thing I like to tell my management teams and the companies that our companies buy is sometimes things will go wrong and let's be patient with each other. Let's even be more patient with each other now over Zoom 
because we can't look at the table across each other and see the little reactions and stuff or knock on the door down the hall or visit with each other as easily as we could two or three years ago. Let's be patient with each other. The second thing is, you know, in terms of expectation setting around things like numbers and performance and key performance indicators or KPIs, like really making sure there's good buy-in between the company that's been acquired and the big company on how you do things like budgeting and setting what the important sort of numerical parameters are for growth, the sort of non-cultural things, that those are done in a collaborative way, but also that they're done in a way where people are sort of held the task and are held responsible. And all that goes back to setting the right incentives. If you can get the incentives right at the beginning, and this is gonna sound like old hat to people who listen to your show, Allidate is all about setting the right incentives in terms of what the mission of the company is, but also setting it with how we make acquisitions, I think is awfully critical. And you're right, there's a million work streams. And at the end of the day, to me, like they sort of come down to those two or three key factors. That was really helpful. And I think just the complexity of it, but also how you need to simplify it when you're judging these decisions, when you're working as an investor to judge whether or not this is going to be a good cultural fit and how those pieces, as complicated as they are, are going to fit together. Because it's not just, you know, a logistical challenge. It's a very human psychological challenge and, and getting to know the cultures and the personalities of, of the companies you're working with. To bring it to a company that we work with, you're on Allidade's board of directors. What does that mean? What does a board of directors do at a private company? I was really excited to join Allidade's board about a year ago. A board of directors of a private company, of all companies, a publicly traded company or a private company, has responsibilities to represent the voices of all the shareholders of the company, not just the shares that I own as an investor. So the board really serves a governance function first and foremost. And as board members, we have what's called duty of care and duty of loyalty. We have to really be looking out for all the shareholders, not just our own interest. And so sometimes you have venture capital or private equity, almost always shareholders who are board members. And we often say, are you answering that question or thinking about that thing with your shareholder hat on or your board member hat on? It's really important in the context of a board to be representing all shareholders and the decisions the board makes. Now, you also often have to happen to be a shareholder and you have to be thinking about your own, but you have to really distinguish that. The board has some sort of tactical things we do in most companies. We have committees like an audit committee. We do the annual audit of the company, a compliance committee. We make sure everything's being done compliantly, particularly in a regulated space like Allidade. We have a compensation committee to make sure the incentives within the company are aligned correctly for the employees and management team. And we make we sort of once a quarter get together and hear about the updates for management in terms of how the company is doing. And then ideally, we really spend good time talking about the strategic direction going forward, mostly listening and sometimes giving counsel and advice to management on really important decisions like entering a new market or a new line of business, making an acquisition of a smaller company or deciding ourselves we wanna be acquired or go public, you know, list our shares publicly on the NASDAQ or the New York Stock Exchange. That's mostly what we do. And it's really important to have a diverse set of voices on a board of directors, not just people who are venture capital investors, but in the case of Allidade, doctors, people who've worked in other places, diversity of background and the voices and experiences you bring into a board make for better decision-making on a board and better discussion. Well, thinking about things that a board thinks about, a company like Allidade, which is venture funded, the goal is at some point something happens with that company. 
It either goes public, it gets acquired. I guess in some cases it could stay private. What are some of the things that go into those decisions? So it's a great question. If a company like Allidate takes money from a venture capital firm or a private equity firm, the money they're actually taking to fuel that growth is at the end of the day, a money a pension fund or an endowment of a university has given to that venture capital investor and said, hey, venture capital investor, go put this in the very best companies you can find, for instance, Allidate. And at some point that pension fund or university endowment, they wanna return on their capital because they're using it to fund the new building on campus or the pension payments to the firefighters in the particular state that gave the money to the venture capital firm. So, and typically that tends to be between three and seven years after, you know, is the, is the time horizon they have. Sometimes it takes longer than that. And for the most important and iconic companies it's worth waiting that long. And the pension funds and endowments and the funds they invest in, the venture funds are willing to wait longer. So the things that go into deciding, you know, should we list our stock on the NASDAQ or the New York Stock Exchange and have public shareholders and report our results publicly once a quarter and be under that microscope? Is, is the company ready for that? Will Wall Street understand the thing that we do? And can we do that thing predictably? Can we predict today what the revenue and earnings of the company, the lives under management, whatever those key metrics are, are gonna be, the shared savings are gonna be three or four quarters ahead of us. How predictable are those metrics, critical metrics? In some cases, you have the size and scale, because not every small company can go public, and predictability that I said, that an ease of understanding of your story that the average shareholder, grandma and grandpa who have a Schwab account, can understand what you do, and therefore you should go public. But in most cases, that's not the case. And most of what happens is that a larger company buys a smaller company. And what goes into either decision, whether it's to list your shares publicly on NASDAQ, sell to a big kind of strategic type company, is how much of the market for the thing we do have we captured? And I think about it in, the, in a kind of a rule of thirds. If there's sort of a third, a third, a third of the market to go capture, somewhere between capturing a third of it and two thirds of it, and you can define market however you want, is the time where I start to talk about with my fellow board members and management teams, somewhere between a third and two thirds of market capture, we should go try to hand the baton to the next runner in the race because we've sort of done the thing we can. And that, that buyer, whether it's grandma and grandpa on Wall Street buying shares or the big publicly traded company, insurance company or whatever, they need to be able to see their own growth. They need to be able to see they can go take a third or two thirds of that market opportunity on their own. They have to believe in that to give you the best pricing to sell. And then there's a million other factors like, is it the right time? What's the macro environment? Is it, are we in a recession? Are people paying high multiples or low multiples? But it's really hard to time markets. It's mostly about what's the company itself doing and where are they on their journey? It's rare to have a company just stay private on its own once you take venture capital money. Because of the dynamic, you can trade your investors, you can like bring in a new set of investors to swap out the old ones, but ultimately every private investor almost always has that constituency, that stakeholder set I said of the pensions and endowments that eventually need to see a return on their money. So that you could probably do that sort of private to private thing once, it's hard to do it two or three times. So almost all private companies, once they've taken private equity or venture, they either sell or go public within about 10 years. 
makes a lot of sense. I think that that timeline is really helpful as you're thinking about these companies, especially as you're looking back at the market broadly and the fact that there's just record amounts of funding coming into primary care specifically, but just the whole value-based care space in general, and trying to get a sense of what the timelines that people are looking at for some of these for some of these companies. Keeping it at that like 30,000-foot view, there was a piece that, uh, actually a couple pieces that recently came out written by Don Berwick, the former head of Medicare and Medicaid, and Rick Gilfillan, uh, former head of the CMS Innovation Center. And it was called the Medicare Money Machine. And they were basically um, discussing the ways that uh, the sudden growth and investment and private funding around Medicare specifically has created some good things and also created some conditions for companies that are working to extract value more than create it. And I realized that this is a very <laughs> a very simple binary to think of the market of, of private funding coming in to the Medicare space. But they have a really interesting close to their piece. And, and just a quick plug for the ACO show, Farzad spoke with Rick Gilfillan in our, our previous episode. So episode 115, I think. So check that out if you get a chance. But I was wondering, the, the close of it, they have a really interesting point where they say change does require capital and to create the healthcare system of the future, you need investment, both public and private, to help incumbent providers learn how to develop new skills and work with new processes and acquire new data that they can use to deliver better care to their patients. And you need that investment for these young upstarts to really disrupt the legacy models that, that need to be changed. They do talk about there's such a, an important role for private investment in really changing the healthcare delivery system. But I was wondering from the private investment side, what factors do you look at or, or how do you basically try to determine if the investments private investor is making are really helping to create value or extract value? Or is it just something that you just kind of feel on a day-to-day -day basis and work your way through kind of very deliberately that way? It's a great question, Brian. I think, and, and, I, and I love Don Berwick and Rick Gilfillan. I think they are right that change does require capital. And many of the most innovative and interesting companies working in the broad healthcare ecosystem, even in primary care, have raised capital from private capital, private equity, private and venture capital. And every investor who invests in this space has a different, what I call, thing they're looking for or set of guardrails. I think most professional private investment firms are trying to generally do the right thing. I found it very rare in my experience that they would want to taint their own reputations by investing in sort of gimmicks. And when I say gimmick, I mean things that are leveraging a code that's kind of overpaid, so to speak, in a particular cycle before it gets corrected. That does happen occasionally, but it's not what most people are oriented towards. But at the end of the day, these funds, again, they're investing on behalf of pensioners, and university endowments, and the museum's endowment, and the college's endowment, and the Ohio police and firefighters. And those people need to see a return on their capital, or Wall Street. So the incentive structure in our system, writ large, whether it's private investment or public, is to maximize shareholder value. And one metric of that is profit, but it's not the only metric. Other metrics of that are very important. And to me, my own personal way I think about investing in healthcare is, I trained as a doctor, so I would say, first, do no harm. And the second thing I do is I don't invest in companies that propagate the fee-for-service environment in outpatient fee-for-service specialties. 
Lots of people do. In fact, the most active investment space in private equity for the last decade has been rolling up, as they call it, or acquiring a lot of dermatology, podiatry, uh, GI practices, putting them together under one umbrella. There's nothing actually wrong with that. Those aren't, by definition, unethical. They're not. Most of those people are trying to do the right thing. They're trying to get scaled and negotiate against the insurance companies. But to me, those investments propagate the fee-for-service system, which I personally and the people in my firm don't believe in as the future of healthcare. And so we don't make those investments, but many, many people do. And that's an okay way to do investments. But at the end of the day, I do agree that change requires capital, but it's, it's really rare, I think, to find capital that's not, at least in their heart, trying to do the right thing within the incentive structure of the overall investment space that we all operate. You are very active on Twitter. I enjoy following you. It's, it's very obvious from there that you're a polymath, everything from, from basketball to epidemiology to investing. Uh, one of the things you've written about recently is the way that healthcare stocks have been getting hammered. What's going on there? It's a great question. A lot of healthcare companies went public in the last year and a half. I don't need to tell folks who are listening. It's been a really good sort of environment in terms of public markets. And so the receptivity was high in the midst of the pandemic for things like value-based companies that were going public. And I think the prolongation of the pandemic, the Omicron wave, frankly, the valuation at which the public market bought some of these companies that went public, which we don't need to name, but people can figure out. I think those got a little bit out of lockstep. And then I think the medical costs that a lot of these companies are bearing has turned out to be higher in their business models, their medical delivery models than they anticipated because of the factors we all know around Omicron and Delta and delayed care uh, from the pandemic itself, all coming back into the system at once, staffing costs being really high, burnout, the great resignation amongst nurses and, and frontline workers, all those factors and really high valuations when they went public has been a really good setup for the Wall Street buyer who bought the stock at the IPO to look at it and say, I might've paid too much, I'm gonna sell before things get worse. And so it's not unusual to see stock market price declines of 50, 60, 70, 80% on some of these historically high flying companies. That is remarkable, not a place you wanna be in. And it's probably an advertisement to think really hard about going public and what could go wrong, what could go right. Not every company that goes public will go through that. Some of them have been more resilient. But a lot of them who priced for perfection on valuation exposed themselves to these kinds of falls. And their business model still depended on investor cash to stand the business up. They, on a unit profitability, were not profitable businesses. They were selling uh, nickels for dimes. They were losing money every time a thing happened. And that's a really tough way to have the other things I talked about happen and still be dependent to raise more money. That's the formula for losing 80% of your value. And I think it's going to take a while for those companies to dig out, but I don't think it's necessarily a class effect that says no other companies in the future can go public in healthcare or health tech. But I think those particular companies are going to have a long road ahead to build investor confidence back up. Dr. Bizan uh, Salizadeh, this was an incredible conversation, really illuminating on the investor space around healthcare. We really appreciate your time and we appreciate all of your the help out it and help us support the practices that we serve every day. So thanks for joining us. Thanks guys, appreciate it. This episode of the ACO Show was produced by Leanne Prieti, Dan Ablin, and Alana Coogan. Our theme music is by Greg Berry. 
You can find previous episodes on our website, alladay.com, or on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or anywhere else you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening, and join us next time. Mm-hmm.